This evening I'd like to start with a short quote that's attributed to the Buddha, really to frame what we're doing here. And it says, A wise person is motivated by benefit to oneself, to others, and to both self and others. Very short. A wise person is motivated to benefit oneself, others, and both self and others. So this is a pithy way of saying that our practice is to live a life of mutual benefit. And the same statement is expanded in a slightly different translation, this one by Bhikkhu Sujato, where it says, an astute person with great wisdom is one who lives the intention to, has no intention to hurt themselves or to hurt others or to hurt both. When they think, they only think of benefit for themselves, for others, for both, and for the whole world. That's how a person is astute, with great wisdom. So alongside that wisdom, we can hear that in the orientation to non-harming and to benefit, there's also kindness and compassion. So perhaps that sounds like a nice idea, but how do we actually live a life of mutual benefit? Any guesses, anyone? What might be the means for doing that? Mm, mindfulness and compassion. Mindfulness, compassion, wisdom. Wisdom, yep. Sharing. Sharing, generosity. Generosity, patience. Patience. Looking after self. Yep. Loving, loving kindness. Intention. Yep. So most of those things you're naming are all aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path, mm-hmm. right? I think everyone here has at least heard of that, perhaps. And it's this Noble Eightfold Path that we're planning to explore in the first few weeks or months of this year. And, you know, maybe some of you might be wondering, well, why this topic? Because we have a few times, a couple of times at least, touched into it in Auckland Insight over the years. But it's a theme that we can keep revisiting throughout our whole lives. Because really the Noble Eightfold Path is at the heart of everything that the Buddha taught. So you could say it's the heartwood that all of our understanding grows from. So just very quickly, for people who haven't perhaps heard of this Noble Eightfold Path before, as you know, I often like to do a pop quiz. So it's pop quiz time. This is a good test. No, it has to be in order. (laughs) Right. right view, right thank you. Intention. Yes, thank you. Right intention is right. two. Spe- right speech. Yes, right speech. Very good. Right live action. Right action. Right action. Then right, right livelihood. And then. Uh, yes. Actually, I missed one out on my text. Right effort. Thank you. And then. Concentration. Right. One before that. Mindfulness. Right mindfulness, and then. Right. So, right, and then right concentration or right samadhi. So, if you missed one actually, what's the extra value you put on? I was short one. <laughs> and, you know, they say the one that you forget is the one that you most need. So, <laughs> it's kind of tell me something about wise effort there. 
So that's great. I'm impressed. That's just a quick run through and I'll flesh them out a little bit more detail later on in the talk. But what I want to highlight for now is that together these eight path factors, they include every aspect of our lives. Nothing is left out. And I like to emphasize that, partly because in the way these teachings have come to the West, the meditation factors tend to have been overemphasized and the other factors tend to have been downplayed or even completely ignored. And these are the factors that are about how we live in the world and why we do this practice. So as a result, it's surprising how often I meet people who might have been meditating for years, even decades, but they don't understand the purpose of their meditation. They don't understand why they're doing it. They don't have the framework that helps their practice to deepen. And so they don't experience the full benefit of what these teachings can offer. So in the context of the Buddha's teachings, the Noble Eightfold Path is often referred to as a prescription. It's a prescription for well-being, for happiness. So as an analogy, if we think in terms of our physical health, imagine someone who'd been diagnosed with a really serious life-threatening illness. That person would probably be given a range of different treatments. So they'd probably be prescribed some pretty intense drugs. And they'd probably be recommended to get more exercise and to eat a better diet and pay attention to their sleep. And if they're smokers and drinkers, to give up those kind of things. And in terms of physical health, it will be obvious, I think, in that situation that just taking the medication alone is not going to be enough to come back to full health. But the analogy with our Dharma practice, many people have an unconscious belief that they just need to take the medication, in this case the meditation, mm -hmm. And all that other stuff is just unnecessary. At least this was true for me early on in my own practice. And I've since met many other people who, they start meditating with a hope that it's going to somehow change their life for the better. But they don't necessarily recognize that they need to change their lives for the better in order to meditate more effectively. Because it's a two-way relationship. <clears throat> And often there's a kind of wishful thinking, almost magical thinking, that people want to be able to just live their lives the way they've always lived them, and then just sprinkle in 10 or 15 minutes of mindfulness a day, and somehow that's going to make everything all right. But when we look at this Noble Eightfold Path and these eight factors, it's clear that it's a very holistic, a very comprehensive path of practice. It doesn't leave out any aspect of our lives. And each aspect really supports and reinforces the other so that together they provide this powerful cure for suffering. So they bring about full health, not just physical health, but emotional health, psychological health, relational well-being, really complete happiness. 
So this is what we're going to be exploring over the next few months, and we're going to be looking at it in a range of different ways, all of them grounded in our own actual immediate experience. And so as a support for that practice, we've been, we will be using Gregory Kramer's book, which we have a couple of copies there for you to look at. It's called A Whole Life Path. A Lay Buddhist Guide to Crafting a Dharma-Infused Life. So when I say we'll be using that book, just to be clear, I don't mean we're going to use it in a sort of book club kind of way where each week we all have to read a chapter and then come and discuss that chapter. It's more just available as a resource, particularly for the people who are facilitating, just to dip into and find something that feels relevant, and then share that with the group. So there's no expectation that you will have to buy this book and read through it from cover to cover. It's just available there if it feels useful and relevant. But I would like to share a passage from that book now, just to get a sense of how Greg introduces his path. He says, The Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path provides a wiser way through life than any offered by our conditioning. It's an intentional path through life's tangles. An intention is necessary. Any change for the good has to face the momentum that made things as they are now. Old habits run deep. We complicate, palliate, protect, and meander. Norms are sustained in our relationships and patterns are perpetuated by family and societal precedents. Organizational structures are built around ignorance, greed, and aversion. When we feel threatened or enticed, personal and social responses like aggression or lust often overpower our reflection or compassion. Things big and small call for our attention, and mindfulness and self-awareness are not a given. So although the Eightfold Path is an intentional path, designed specifically to counteract the ways in which our lives are compacted, we usually miss out on the full extent of the freedom the path offers. Why? Because we apply the Buddha's teachings to our lives in only a semi-intentional way. If we truly aspire to ending our personal ignorance and craving and want to support relationships rooted in kindness and compassion and to contribute to human flourishing and to a just and humane society, then we need a fully immersive engagement with the Noble Eightfold Path. We need the Buddha's path to be a whole life path. So you can hear in that quote the need for intentionality, for making a deliberate effort, for consciously orienting ourselves in the direction of the ease, the happiness, the freedom that this path offers. And just to say, everyone showing up here tonight is a very powerful support for that. Because it's, as I'm sure you all know, it's hard to do this work by ourselves. It does go against the current of a lot of mainstream values, a lot of mainstream conditioning. So we need the support of each other to keep heading in the right direction. So right there we've got 
right intention and right action and right effort. And all of these are being strengthened when we come here each week. And again, this is not just for our own benefit, but the benefit of each other and the benefit of both. So that's the life of mutual benefit that I named at the start. So hopefully you can see that these path factors are already at work in our lives, even if we don't consciously recognize them. But when we do bring that conscious awareness to them, it strengthens them enormously. So I'd like to do just a first run-through of what each of them are, just for context, and then over the coming weeks and months we can start to dive into them in more depth. But first, just to say a little bit about the word right that's in front of each of these. So right is the usual English translation of the Pali word sama. And in some ways, it's slightly unfortunate translation. Because when we hear the word right in English, what's the usual response? Right and wrong. (laughs) Yeah, There's something very binary and... We think in terms of right and wrong and good and bad and success and failure and it can set up quite dualistic or even moralistic thinking. Because that's a judgment almost, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds like a judgment in English. But uh, Gil Fransdell says that this word sama can also mean proper or complete or in harmony. And he says when right is the translation we can think of it as meaning appropriate like when we speak of having the right tool for the job. And because the path of practice is made up of practices rather than beliefs, right does not refer to truths that we're obliged to adopt or to moralistic judgments of right and wrong. So I prefer to think of sama as right as meaning helpful. And the eight right practices of the Eightfold Path our perspectives and practices that help us to attain the freedom that the Buddha teaches us is possible for all of us. So even though we hear the word right, we want to keep in mind this understanding of appropriate or wise or harmonious. And when we, particularly when we come to that first path factor, which is right view, Does it sound different if you think in terms of wise view or appropriate view? Mm -hmm. To my ears it sounds a bit less authoritarian and sort of narrow. And I prefer the translation wise view because it's pointing us to what we are cultivating here. All of these factors are aimed at cultivating wisdom. It almost makes it more attainable, really. Yeah, so it sounds more attainable when we think of wise view rather than right view. And as one just very basic definition to get started, wise view is the understanding of what leads to harm and suffering and what leads away from harm and suffering to ease, to peace, to freedom. So that's one of the grounding aspects of wise view. The second path factor is right intention, also commonly translated as right thought and sometimes right resolve. And again, in this context, it has quite a specific definition. So we can hear terms like right thought 
in English, and to me it sounds like George Orwell in 1984, you know, the fort police are coming to get you. Think like this or else. But the thought that's being pointed to here, maybe more accurately, is right intention than right thought. And it's defined as three quite specific intentions. The intention of renunciation or relinquishment to counteract greed. The intention of goodwill or kindness to counteract ill will. And the intention of harmlessness, which is sometimes also translated as compassion. (coughs) So these right intentions are intended to release their opposites, intentions that are governed by desire, by ill will, and by harmfulness. So right intention comes out of this right view that we want to be steering in the direction of freedom. And then from that grounding, we get right or wise speech. So if we think of right intention as being about our inner speech and our thoughts, right speech is about how we communicate to others and on the most basic level what does it mean what's the most basic definition of right speech truth Truth, not lying yeah thank you but it's not just abstaining from false speech it also includes abstaining from slanderous speech from harsh speech and from idle chattering So again, a lot of refinement there, a lot that we could explore. But I'm keeping this brief tonight so we can get a sense of all of them. So the next one is right action. Pretty basically how we behave in the world. And again, based in right view and right intention, we're trying to ensure that everything we do is grounded in that same commitment to non-harming. So again, it's specifically defined as abstaining from taking life, abstaining from taking what is not given, and abstaining from sexual misconduct. Anybody recognize those? From what context? Five precepts. Yeah, so those are the first three of the five ethical training precepts that we usually take at the start of a retreat and Some of you may be taking them more regularly. So right action is generally how we show up in the world. And the next one, right livelihood, is an extension of that, how we earn our living and how we live our lives more generally. So in terms of our living, it's defined for lay people as making an honest living, so supporting ourselves through legal means without trickery, without deceit, and always in ways that don't cause harm to ourselves or to others. But as Gil Franzville has pointed out, livelihood isn't just about how we make a living. It includes our whole lifestyle, what we produce, what we consume, our impact on the environment. So again, when we start to look at these, they start to become pretty big topics, ones that we can explore and that are endlessly refinable. So, those previous 
path factors lay out how we engage with the world through right speech, right action, right livelihood. And the last three are more specifically about our meditation practice. So, right effort. Of course we need effort in the world out there, but in this context it's also looking at how are we applying effort in our meditation practice. So we want to apply that effort with wisdom, with right view. So it's defined as the effort to overcome unskillful mental qualities, sometimes shortened as the five hindrances that most of you know of, but all unskillful states, greed, agitation, anger, judgment, anxiety, restlessness, shame, guilt, despair, trying to keep this talk short but there's a whole lot of unskillful states that we could name there so part of right effort is helping to release those and then the other part is the opposite side of the scale strengthening the skillful the beneficial mind states anybody like to have a go at naming some of them joy joy thank you equanimity equanimity yes Tranquility. Tranquility. Compassion. Compassion. Concentration. Concentration. Mindfulness. Mindfulness, yes. Let's see if you can squeeze out a couple more. Empathy. <laughs> Sorry? Empathy. Empathy, yes, yep. Patience, yeah. So there's also a long list of skillful states, but because of our negativity bias, we tend to be a bit more fluent with the unskillful ones than the skillful ones. So this too is an aspect of right effort, learning to recognize and strengthen what's beneficial. And somebody named mindfulness, so this is actually the seventh path factor, the mental faculty known as sati in Pali. And this is our capacity for presence of mind, to know what we're doing as we're doing it without reactivity. And as I've mentioned a few times, and as most of you know, mindfulness these days is pretty mainstream and pretty widespread. So in terms of what makes right mindfulness right is that it's developed in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. So it's supported by the other seven path factors and it's underpinned by right or wise view, which means that mindfulness is used in the service of wisdom, in the service of compassion for the deepening of freedom. So then we come to the final path factor, which is right samadhi. And as many of you have heard me say, I try to avoid translating it as concentration. Because, again, in English, that term concentration can sound like a very fixed or even fixated or forced narrowing of attention, which is actually the opposite of what genuine samadhi is. It's a letting go, a relaxing a gathering into a profound steadiness of mind, stability of mind. So it's talked about as unification or absorption or complete non-distractability. 
And when these states of samadhi are attained, it's true they can be intensely pleasurable. But what makes them right is again that they're developed in a service of wisdom and not in and of themselves, as an end in themselves. Okay, so that's just a brief overview of what these eight path factors are, just to get a sense of what's included. And just to say again that it's really including all aspects of our lives, because meditation doesn't happen in a vacuum. Everything that we do outside of our meditation practice, it's not going to tidily, nicely fall away when we happen to sit down to meditate. So if we want the full benefit of the path, we need to be aware of what we're doing outside of our practice as well. So this is why right view is the beginning. When we understand that we need to live our lives with more awareness, the benefit of that heightened awareness is that we tend to create less dramas internally or externally. So that when we do come to meditate, we have more energy available to settle, to focus, to calm, to see clearly. And we can see what we're doing. We can see the effects on ourselves and on others. So that clear seeing then feeds back into how we show up in the world and our behavior becomes more refined. And as it becomes more refined, there's less disturbance in the mind. We can see even more clearly. And so there's this spiral, this positive feedback loop. And we can think of this path rather than as a linear straight line, as a kind of a spring that's circling around and upwards, feeding back into itself and refining and increasing and improving, always in the direction of increasing ease, and happiness and freedom. So, this Noble Eightfold Path is the Buddha's prescription for completely curing ourselves of unhappiness. And it works on all aspects of our lives at once. And just to get a sense of that, often it's talked about in terms of three aspects. These eight path factors can fit into three baskets, you could say, three aspects of our lives. And these groupings are known as sila, samadhi, and panya. Ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so these three areas need to be equally well developed. It's seen as being like the legs of a stool or a tripod. We need each leg to be equally developed if we're going to have a stable functioning tripod or stool. So the ethics leg pretty clearly made up of which three factors? Right speech, right yeah. action, right livelihood. Yes, very good. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. The meditation leg is made up of which three? Effort, concentration, F. and mindfulness. Yes, very good. Right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. So what does that leave for the wisdom leg? Right view and right intention. Yeah, you guys are good. So it can pay from time to time just to use that understanding of these three frameworks 
as a kind of a template to look at how is our practice developing and to see if there might be ways that we're getting a bit more developed in one and perhaps not so aware of the others. So just some common ways that people can get off balance. Some people absolutely love silent meditation to such an extent that they just want to withdraw from the world and not have to engage with all that messy, complicated relationship stuff and making a living and dealing with family and all that kind of thing. They just want to go on retreat, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year if possible. And so obviously they're not developing the uh, ethical factors or the wisdom factors so clearly. Other people really enmeshed, you could say, in daily life and can't even imagine taking time out to go on retreat to deepen their meditation practice. And still others really love the ideas of Buddhism. They read lots of talks, or sorry, read lots of books and listen to lots of talks and they're very engaged in terms of a fascinating conceptual or theoretical practice, but it doesn't in any way transform their lived reality. So we want to just from time to time check is there an imbalance in these various ways If you've done lots of silent retreats, you might start looking at ways to do more study. And these days with the pandemic, there are so many more online courses available that we do have more access to the teachings that frame all of this. If you've done a lot of study, then you might want to look at doing more retreats. And for some people there's a lot of activism, but it's not necessarily grounded in a stillness and stability and strongly developed compassion and self-compassion, so it's easy to burn out. So we just want to check from time to time. Are all of these path factors being equally well developed? And again, just coming back to what we're doing here right now, we might start to recognize that we are developing them probably much more of the time than we realize. So you all came along tonight. You chose to be here rather than watching TV or whatever else you might have been doing. Right there, you're strengthening right view and right intention. And I think all of you have a commitment to non-harming. So those three ethical factors, right speech, right action, right livelihood being cultivated and when we meditate together we're developing samadhi factors right effort, right mindfulness right concentration so just in this one session tonight we've got all eight right, to varying degrees yeah, so you might laugh but it's only partly a joke you know, to start using this framework to see Much more is being developed and bringing consciousness to that helps to strengthen it. And all of it in the service of living that life of mutual benefit. So that's probably plenty for one night. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just take a short moment of silence and then we can have time for questions, reflections. (laughs) 